Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to the living room. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We covered half of that chapter last week. We celebrated communion together and then a baptism outside. This chapter is 75 verses long. I probably would have chosen a different chapter consideration had I been part of the crew. By the way, the chapters and verses were added later. They're not inspired. And somebody just got carried away and made a long chapter. So we have to divide it up, and we're going to consider the remainder of chapter 26 tonight of the Gospel of Matthew. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we pray because we're formally telling you that our hearts, our lives, are open tonight to what your Holy Spirit has for us specifically as we gather. We know, Lord, that we're joined by others. We're joined by a a campus in Santa Fe that's part of this fellowship, part of our body, part of this study, and we're thankful. We're joined by people on the internet, in cyberspace, or even in a chat room right now, watching and interacting together. We're joined by people on the radio in this city and other cities around our state. And Father, we place ourselves before you as living sacrifices and just pray that we would glean everything you have for us from this section of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. No doubt some of you have had a great week, a glorious week, a victorious week. You're um, on the pinnacle of the mount, sort of like you're on the Mount of Olives looking over the great view. Others of you are down in the valley, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you will. And you're experiencing difficulty and hardship. And so this study is perfect for you because Jesus faces his garden of Gethsemane in this chapter. And we're going to be drawing lessons out. Throughout history, there have been great battles. And there are so many of them, it's hard to enumerate all of them, but some come to mind. The Battle of Karshemish, 605 B.C. The Egyptians and the Assyrians fighting against the Babylonian. It changed history, the Battle of Karshemish. Another battle that comes to mind is the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, a Roman battle, where in 312 A.D., Constantine fought against Maxentinius and he won that battle. Supposing that he saw in the sky a cross that gave courage to his troops to win that battle. And history was changed because of that battle. Uh, Other battles, like the Battle of Waterloo with Napoleon, is notable. Battles in World War I and World War II. Then if we think in the future, the greatest of all battles, the mother of all battles, the Battle of Armageddon. 
But those within the battles themselves, especially those who are in command of one side or the other, the generals of the battle will tell you that in, in every theater of operations, every battle, there is a decisive moment a period of time, a window of time. It's like a teeter-totter. The battle could go either way. And so a choice must be made. And depending on what choices are made during that battle, one side or the other side will win. In the Garden of Eden, there was a battle being waged. Adam was there. Man was there. And he made a choice and effectively lost the battle. In the Garden of Gethsemane, another battle was waged. This time, Jesus Christ was there, and he made the ultimate choice, the right choice, to surrender to the will of the Father, and he won the battle. And he won it for us. Now, we left off in chapter 26, verse 30, and so that's really a hinge point. We go back to verse 30. It says... When they had sung a hymn that was in the upper room at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, we call it. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So picture the scene. Jesus with his disciples, Judas had already left the supper, got up, left the upper city of Jerusalem, which is the western side of the city, walked out of town, walked eastward through the Kidron Valley and started ascending the Mount of Olives. And right there at the base of the Mount of Olives as you ascend is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's something interesting. The Bible begins in a garden... Human history begins in a garden. And sin enters that garden. If you fast forward all the way to the very end of time, and you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you get to a garden city, your future home, the new Jerusalem. Streams of water flowing from the throne of God and trees on either side of that river. It's a beautiful garden city where sin has been eradicated. Between the Garden of Eden and the garden city of Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And you could do an interesting study on just those three gardens. If you were to compare, once again, Eden with Gethsemane, in the Garden of Eden, sin entered, Adam was there, life began there, sin began there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, whom Paul called, Jesus Christ, Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. He was making that comparison. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam not only won the battle, but dealt with sin head on. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, the first Adam, after he sinned, he hid, he ran, he fled, he tried to cover up himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, 
didn't hide. He presented himself openly, not only before the crowd, but before his father to do his father's will. It's an interesting comparison. Something else. This whole scene takes place in darkness. And it's nighttime, but more than that, there is a spiritual darkness. We read in the Gospel of John that Judas left the upper room, left the Last Supper. It says, Judas went out and it was night, says John. It was a dark evening. It was a full moon because it was Passover, but it was a dark night spiritually. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke to the religious leaders, This is your hour and the power of darkness. And so darkness and that coming, impending death of Christ looms over this scene. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted on the mountain after he had fasted 40 days in the wilderness? Satan came and tempted him and Jesus rebuked him. And it says, Satan left him until he could find, you remember what the scripture says? An opportune time. Satan left at the temptation, but Satan was looking for another time, an opportune time. Did he find one? Well, yes, he did. One of those times was at Caesarea Philippi. When Peter, after saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus predicted that he would die on the cross, Peter tried to keep Jesus from that plan, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus recognized that voice. It was the voice of Satan. Interesting that one of God's own people can speak as the words of Satan himself. You're not thinking like a man thinks. You're thinking, or like a God thinks, you're thinking like a man thinks. Get behind me, Satan. And the other time was here. The opportune time is here. As Jesus is in the garden and facing this battle. So... They had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and they're at the base of that. You'll see the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Now here Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 13. And the verse is quoted before you. And Jesus quotes it here. Why? Because he knows that's a verse that was written about him personally. And he quotes it. That's what the prophet Zechariah said. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus, knowing that it was written about him, quotes it and acts as the ultimate prophet. He's referring to his own death, strike the shepherd, and his resurrection afterwards, because he says, after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. So this is it, boys. The shepherd is about to be struck, and you, the sheep, will all be scattered, but I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I'm going to be looking you up. I'm going to be watching for you, and you should be watching for me, and we're going to hang out together in Galilee. I love this about Jesus. Jesus knows that we're prone to scattering, that we get scared easily. 
and we're flaky and fidgety and we like to run and hide like Adam did. But what I love about Jesus is he won't let us go. He predicts, he knows that in the future he's going to gather us together like he did these disciples. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Now you'd think Jesus would put his arm around Peter and say, Pete, I knew I could count on you. The reason he didn't is because he knew he couldn't count on him. Peter was in effect saying, you don't know me, Lord. Jesus was in effect saying, I know you better than you know you. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, that this night, before the rooster crows, that is before daybreak, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here a while, sit here while I go pray over there. If you go to Israel today, right there at the base of the Mount of Olives is a church, an ornate church, a beautiful church. The windows on the side are made out of pure alabaster stone cut very thin to emit some light in. And it's called the Church of All Nations. There's a lot of places in Jerusalem and on the Mount of Olives where certain traditional churches will say, here's the authentic Garden of Gethsemane. No, here's the authentic Garden of Gethsemane. Or here's the authentic place where Jesus ascended into heaven. No, here's the authentic place. Jesus. There's three of them, by the way. And all of them are wrong as far as the ascension because the Bible says Jesus went as far as Bethany on the Mount of Olives and ascended. But anyway, the church of all nations is probably as close to the authentic original Garden of Gethsemane as you can get. Because history tells us that it was there. Now, outside the city of Jerusalem, wealthy people lived and they kept gardens and they kept... Um, an olive garden on the Mount of Olives. Let me just tell you about this. Gethsemane comes from two words in Hebrew. Gat is one. Shmanim is the second. Gat Shmanim. We transliterate it Gethsemane. Gat means press. Shmanim is the plural for olives. So it's the place of the olive press. It's where olives were grown and it's where olives were crushed to make olive oil. Today there are still groves of olive trees on the Mount of Olives and we always like to bring our group there in the Garden of Gethsemane across from the Church of All Nations and sit among the olive trees and have a time of worship and Bible study and really get the feel. In fact, many times when we go to Israel, the first night we get to Jerusalem, I often will take a walk. It's about a depending on where the hotel is, five to seven mile walk down into the Garden of Gethsemane, hop over the wall and get the feeling of what it was like to be there at night and just pray. But it was the place of the olive press. And here's how olives were pressed. There was a large stone, the lower stone, another large stone that sat on top, the upper stone. Olives were placed in between and the upper stone revolved, crushing the olives the pit, the pulp, the skin. 
and the olive oil would flow in a channel and be collected. The value of the olive only came with the crushing of the olive. The olive wasn't as valuable just to eat. The most valuable product of the olive was the oil. It became most valuable after it was crushed in Gatshmanim, Gethsemane, the olive press. See where I'm going with this? Jesus Christ was crushed for us. According to Isaiah the prophet, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Also, we know that in the Scripture, oil is often emblematic of the Holy Spirit. But before you get oil, there has to be a crushing. There has to be a Gethsemane before there can be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus crushed, the Holy Spirit dispatched, filling us, His people. And He said to His disciples, verse 36, Sit here while I go and pray over there. I just want to remark that there is an accusation that is made sometimes, made by legalistic churches, legalistic denominations toward those of us who preach what the Bible preaches, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And they see people coming to faith in Christ and trusting what Jesus has done once and for all on the cross. And they'll use the term that Diedrich Bonhoeffer quoted or made famous. And they'll quote us saying, this is just cheap grace. Cheap grace. Just believing in the grace and the love of Jesus on the cross. Cheap grace. And my blood boils when I hear that. There's nothing cheap about it. It's free for us. Absolutely free. You can't earn it. You can't add to it. But it cost Jesus everything. He had to be crushed, pierced, bruised, decimated. And He's feeling the weight of that even now in this garden as He says, sit here while I go and pray over there. Now let's just talk about your Gethsemane and my Gethsemane. We all have them. We hate them. We hate to be pressed, don't we? We hate to be crushed by life circumstances. We hate the weight of the trial. We love Psalm 23 except one part. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Love that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Love that. He leads me beside the still waters. Totally right on. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He restores my soul. Love it so far. The next part we hate. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We read that and go, David, you're not sane in writing that. How can you say that? We don't like valleys. We don't like the shadow of death. We don't like Gethsemanes. We don't like going down. 
We'd rather the Lord just airlift us from mountaintop to mountaintop experience. Right? You turn on Christian television. Have you got your victory today? We got the victory. We got the victory. Hey, you have to have a battle to have the victory. You can't just throw that term around. It implies that you're fighting a battle and you've won it. That there's a valley before there's a mountain peak. However, the shepherd of the Middle East will tell you that when he leads his sheep down into the deep valleys, the reason he does it is because that's where the greenest pastures are because the water sources seek low ground. The wadis, they're called in the Middle East. We call them arroyos here. They call them wadis there. And the wadis out in the desert, the arroyos. It's where the water springs are and where the greenest pastures are. However, the shepherds will tell us that the sheep are timid to go down the steep cliffs. They don't like it. They resist it. They push back. So the shepherd has to prompt them, um, motivate them, stick that little thing in the tail and get down there. And then once the sheep is down there, it's like, wow, as much as I hated this valley... This is the greenest, most verdant pasture ever. I don't know if he's actually thinking that. He's just eating, but... (laughs) You get the message. You get the point. How many times have you heard believers say in the midst of a trial, I dreaded this, but I found the sweetest fellowship from the Lord in this darkest valley. I never knew fellowship. I never knew the graciousness of God as much as in this dark and desperate time. I've heard it a lot. I've experienced it. And he took with him, verse 37, Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee. Do you know their names? James and John. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. The two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. There's something that I find fascinating. These three guys hung around Jesus, as did the others, but on three separate occasions, they shared a special moment with Jesus that none of the other disciples shared. The first moment is recorded at the house of Jairus. Remember Jairus? The ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. He's called in Greek the archesunagogos, or ruler of the synagogue. And Jairus had a daughter that died. And Jesus walked into the house and raised her from the dead. That's the first time. Peter, James, and John were the only disciples that got to see that and experience that. The second experience was up on a mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, up north by Caesarea Philippi. They saw Moses and Elijah transfigured with Jesus And Luke chapter 12, I believe, it says that Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his decease, his death that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And the third time is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, why is that interesting? Because in all three of those moments, there's one thing that is the common denominator. Do you know what it is? Death. Death. In the first incident, the incident of Jairus 
Jesus conquered death. He raised her from the dead. She got up again. She was fully dead. Not mostly dead, not sleeping, but dead. Jesus conquered death. In the second incident, the Mount of Transfiguration, they were discussing Jesus' coming death in Jerusalem. That was being glorified through death. One, he conquered over death. Second, he would be glorified through death. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is surrendering to death. It's interesting that on all three occasions, death is the common denominator, and these three, the inner circle, are there to observe it. And so Jesus confesses to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. That is, the idea is to watch in in prayer, not sit here and look at your watch, but sit here and watch with me, be with me, support me as I surrender to the Father's will, surrender to death. Something else that I find interesting. Peter, James, and John. James was the first martyr, first one killed among the disciples. John, his brother, was the last one killed. And Peter was in between. He was crucified like Jesus, but upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord died. So, interesting background. At least I find it interesting. Verse 39. He went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He will say this twice. You'll read it. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he saying? He's saying, Father, if there is any other way that mankind can have salvation, except through my suffering and death, let it be. If there's any other way, if there's some way this cup can pass from me, let it be done. If mankind could be saved by being nice, if mankind could be saved by being sincere, if mankind could be saved by just being religious, picking some religious faith that feels good to them, if they could be saved by recycling, <laughs> you know, whatever it would be that we think, oh, that, there's a fine, upstanding person. Nevertheless, not as I will. But as you will. And the fact that he surrendered and went to the cross shows there is no other way whereby mankind can approach God and have a relationship with God except through this. Now, he talks about the cup. And most commentators will say this speaks of the cup of suffering, drinking the cup of suffering. But let me submit to you that that's not what he's speaking about. What he's speaking about is the cup of judgment cup in the Bible, I looked it up in several places, it most typically speaks of the cup of God's wrath against sin. Even in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, it speaks of the cup of the wine of the wrath of Almighty God. But let me just show you briefly. You can, you can turn with me or you just keep, keep your Bible there. I'm going to read to you uh, out of Isaiah the prophet. Just a couple verses. This is Isaiah 51, verse 21. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, and be drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, 
the Lord and your God who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you. He speaks to the city of Jerusalem who have undergone affliction and suffering because of their sin. Now he says, it's over. I'm not pouring that cup on you anymore, but on those who afflicted you. One other verse. This is Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink to whom the Lord had sent me. So here is Jesus in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The next day he would bear the sins of the world. He would take upon himself the wrath of God for sin on his own body. All of the punishment for sin he would take. That's the cup, the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath against sin. That's why Jesus prayed on the cross. This is why Jesus said on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? In that moment, he felt the fellowship with his father end. He felt utterly alone and abandoned as the father turned, as it were, his face from the Son because God can't have fellowship with the sin that he judges. And Jesus felt abandoned, the lowest point in his existence. Some of you know what it's like to be abandoned, maybe by a parent, maybe by a divorce, maybe by a child or a close friend, but no one here can say, I know what it's like to be abandoned by God. Because Jesus said he would never leave you. He'd never forsake you. He was forsaken. He was cut off for that time that you may never, ever be abandoned or cut off. So Jesus' prayer, if it's possible. Boy, think about that. What, What a transaction. What a negotiation is going on. You think, Jesus could have bailed on this. Because he willingly surrendered to the Father. He could have bailed on this. He could have said, Father, Skip Heitzig is not worth it. He's just weird. He's flaky. It's not worth it. But he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done, he prays. Then he came, verse 40, Matthew Chapter 26, verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you stay here and watch? Sure, Lord. Hey, I'm not throwing stones. I'm glad that's written. I relate to these men of flesh and bone. He found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's sleeping. They're all sleeping. But 
Peter said, you can count on me. Everybody else may flake it out on you tonight, but I never will. That's what he said. That's step number one for Peter's denial of Jesus. Overconfidence. Now we read step number two in his denial of Jesus. Sleeping when he should be praying. He should be watching. He's sleeping. Again, a second time he went away and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, third time. For their eyes were heavy. Think about that phrase. Their eyes were heavy. Have you found that to be true? Can you relate to this? When you go to prayer, why is it that your eyes get heavy, your mind gets distracted, the phone rings, you go blank? It's just an interesting thing. If you're watching a movie, full attention. You're reading your favorite book, full attention. You go to prayer and study. Oh, man. Dude, what's up? Why is that? Because you have an enemy. And your enemy, Satan, knows that there's power in prayer and profit in study. And he seeks to cut that off early on. So let me make a suggestion to you. Next time you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says, watch and pray, get up and walk around. You don't have to leave the garden, but walk around the garden. I find that when I pray, it's best for me to go out and take a walk. I have a couple little trails that I follow, and I just bring my thoughts and my heart before the Lord. And it's best for me to do it out loud. Because then I can't easily get distracted. And it's hard to fall asleep when you're walking. I guess it's possible. There are (laughs) sleepwalkers, but probably won't happen. And so he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Oh, this, that was the second. This is the third time. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Enter into the scene. These are disciples. Here are disciples. While disciples are sleeping, enemies are plotting. While Jesus' disciples are sleeping, Jesus' enemies are plotting. Judas and the gang, the crew, the Romans, the Jewish authorities are plotting how to take Jesus. Now that is true. I believe there are meetings that take place in hell. Because I believe, just as you have angels assigned to you, it's my belief that we are, our war is not, the Bible says, against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, in dark, heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. And I think there are meetings in hell, how to wreak havoc in your life, in your marriage, in your ministry. So we need to be aware and we need to watch because some battles can only be won on your knees. And if you're on your knees, it's hard to fall in battle. Fight them on your knees. Persist in prayer. Rise. 
Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's Judas. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. A great multitude. How great of a multitude? Well, if you were to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 18, which is a parallel to this, it says a detachment of troops. A detachment. That is a Roman cohort. That is 600 men. One-tenth of a legion ruled by a tribune. That's it. 600 men? Okay, now granted... You go, well, that, that, that would be overkill, right? They're going to arrest Jesus and a few of his disciples. Why 600 men? Some believe that that word in Greek, detachment or cohort, the Greek word spera, means 200 men. Either way, I don't know, 200 men to 600 men, interrupting a prayer meeting. This is like the SWAT team with all of the guns and grenades coming into a home Bible study. Evidently, Judas doesn't know Jesus very well. I've got to bring the big guns. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he's going to try to run. That's probably what Judas thought. He's going to try to run, so we need a lot of people. Or he's going to try to do some miracle. He saw what Jesus could do. He's going to be, do some miraculous thing. We're going to need lots of people to stop him. Okay, now, if that's what he's thinking, he's just an idiot. Because if Jesus can walk on water and raise the dead, He can take care of 600 dudes. Nonetheless, that is the record. Great multitude. The SWAT team comes. Now His betrayer, verse 48, had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, He's the one, seize Him. Notice that. Evidently, Jesus didn't look different than anybody else. If He was in a crowd, you couldn't say, Oh, now that must be Jesus Christ. Look at him. He's, got, he's the one with the halo. <laughs> Judas had to give a sign. He didn't say, now when you get there, you'll know who it is. He's the one that's glowing. He glows in the dark. Or he's taller than everybody else. Or, you know, he's got that hair and that beard like the pictures. No, he looks like a Jewish man. You couldn't tell him from any of the other disciples. So the sign was, I'm going to kiss him, a greeting kiss. Immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, listen, greetings, my teacher, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, I love that, friend, reaching out to him even now, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Judas was a frenemy. Someone who pretends to be your friend but is really your enemy. Now, when he was born and he laid in that little crib, his parents looked at him and said, what should we name him? And they named him a beautiful name. His name means praise. Judah. Judas. May he grow up to praise the Lord. We call him praise. That was his name. Jesus gave him another name. The son of perdition. Or the son of waste. 
Everything Judas touched, he defiled. He defiled the disciples by his presence. He defiled Mary when she tried to pour that beautiful ointment on Jesus for his death and burial. This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. He defiled that. Now he defiles a prayer meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everything he touched, he ruined. Verse 51. Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Notice it doesn't say who. Just suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay, Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but his good buddy and close friend, John, you know there was a little competition between them, spilled the beans and said, Simon Peter was the dude who took the sword. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place or put away your sword. For all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Now we know something about Peter and we're not really that surprised at this point because we know that Peter was impulsive. Am I right? It was Peter who at Caesarea Philippi, after saying, I know who you are, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. He said, far be it from you, that's never going to happen. Jesus rebuked him, called him Satan. But I don't know that he ever got over that. I think he's trying to prove himself right. I'm not going to be the one to deny you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to be the one who sticks up for you. And we're not going to let this happen to you. So he takes the sword out. Now, he was a fine fisherman. He was a lousy swordsman. I think he was going to try to cut off his head, missed because he was not good at the sword, and cut off his ear. And the Bible tells us that Jesus took the ear of the servant called Malchus in another gospel and healed him. Healed him. By the way, This is the last recorded miracle of Jesus before his death and resurrection. Why is that significant? The last miracle Jesus performed was healing a man who was suffering as a result of a foolish disciple taking his sword out. Hmm. I think that this is probably the most common, the most often miracle of Jesus to this day. You see, Jesus' disciples, us, you and me, we love to pull our sword of the Spirit out and wield it around and sometimes hurt other people in the name of defending Jesus Christ. And Jesus is still in the business of healing people that foolish disciples hurt by wielding the sword of the Spirit. I'm here to defend Jesus. Here, take this text. Slice. Take that verse. Cut. And we think we're doing the kingdom of God a favor by defending Jesus and attacking His people. And so the body of Christ is bloodied up. You have noses here and ears flopping over here. Because... We use the Bible 
to cut people down. If that's how you use the Bible, if it's all about defending, 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 then put your sword away. If all you want to do is cut up other people, put it away. You're not using it right. Peter, put your sword away. You're about injuring people, not healing people. Jesus healed him. And then he said, how could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Okay, here's the part I really want you to zero in on. Jesus said, Peter, come on. Do, don't you know, if I wanted to, if I really needed defense, and I don't, I could call 12 legions of angels, one legion, 6,000 men, 12 legions, 72,000. <laughs> 72,000 angels? You know what they could do? Well, in the Old Testament, do you remember one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians? One angel. How many angels did God dispatch to Sodom and Gomorrah when he destroyed it? Two angels. You don't want to tick off an angel. (laughs) Let alone 72,000 angels. Imagine the damage that could be done. Peter, don't need your help, dude. Back off. Put your sword in its place. I love what Spurgeon used to say. He said, I hear so many people talking about defending God and defending the Bible. He said, the Bible is a lion. Just let it out of its cage. Unleash it. God is able to defend himself. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat with you daily teaching in the temple, and you didn't seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled and all of the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Here's Peter. He's still following Jesus, but just not as close as he used to. He used to be right next to Jesus, wherever they go. There's Peter. There's James and John, inner circle. Now he's following him at a distance because it's about self-preservation at this point. He's in the courtyard, but he's not following him closely. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, let's get something straight. Here it says Jesus was taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. According to John's Gospel, chapter 18, he did go to Caiaphas, but he first went to Annas, the high priest, and then to Caiaphas. Why Annas? Annas had been the previous high priest. Now, now this is fascinating because typically a high priest is the high priest until he dies. You don't have a high priest and it's like, Now, I'm now taking retirement. You don't do that. You're a high priest till you die. That's the rules of the Old Testament from the family of Aaron. But Annas, who was placed by the Roman governor Quirinius in 6 AD, was deposed in 15 AD by Valerius Gratus because the Romans were in charge, right, of everything. So the religious leaders were pawns of the Roman government. So Annas was put there but deposed and Caiaphas... His son-in-law was placed in his place. However, 
Most of the people looked at Annas as almost like the king. He's like the guy. He has more authority and power. We, we want what he wants. But there's something else going on behind the scenes. Annas had four sons. His four sons were the ones who were in charge of inspecting the lambs for sacrifice in the temple. They were in charge of the money changers in the temple. And what did Jesus do to the tables of the money changers? Overturned them, whipped them out twice, once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. That would affect Annas and his four boys and the pocketbook. They controlled the concession stands in the temple. So he's brought before Annas and then before Caiaphas. And then verse 59, now the chief priests, the elders, that's the whole governing body, the Sanhedrin, all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Again, I want to clear something up for you. Jesus didn't have a trial. He had six separate trials. Three of them were before Jewish authorities and three of them were before Roman authorities. Trial number one before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Trial number two before Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. Trial number three at daybreak the following day before the whole Sanhedrin with a death sentence. But because the Roman government took away the right of capital punishment from the Jews and only the Romans could dispatch that ruling, they had to bring it now from the religious court to the civil court. So the next three trials, Pontius Pilate, that's number four. Pilate tried to weasel out of it and get Herod to use his jurisdiction. So he was sent to Herod, that's trial number five. Then he was sent back to Pilate, that's trial number six, where Pilate gave in to the whims of the 71-member elder board called the Sanhedrin, and the death sentence was invoked. But notice verse 60, at last two false witnesses came forward, and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said, I put you under oath, that is divine oath, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. At last, two false witnesses were brought to testify. False witnesses. Remember the Ten Commandments? One of the commandments is thou shalt not bear false witness. Now typically we hear that and we think, yeah, that's just telling lies. That's bearing false witness. Think of it in these terms. When they said, he said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Did Jesus say that? He did say that. It was the right information. It was the wrong implication. Bearing false witness isn't just telling a lie. It's giving information to suit your own purposes. It's technically correct, but you're manipulating the situation. Bearing false witness. Now, these trials were unfair, and Jesus knew it, so he kept silent, even as Isaiah prophesied. But finally, the guy said, Look, I'm putting you under a divine oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said to him, 
You said it. That's the equivalent of it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Unmistakably, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, as predicted by Daniel the prophet. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Okay, did you know, according to Jewish law, you know, a person tearing his clothes, you know already, that's a sign of grief. If you're in deep grief, if somebody in your family dies, you tear the garment. You're in mourning. The high priest was forbidden to tear his garment. Except under one case. Blasphemy. If he believed this was a high crime of blasphemy, the high priest, that was the only exception, would tear the robe. And he tore it. Saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and they said, he's deserving of death. Then they spat on his face. On your Jesus, on your Savior, on my Savior, they spat on his face. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who's the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. I want you to know something. In the Mishnah, there are 18 rules given to the Sanhedrin for trials of a capital nature or capital punishment. 18 rules. One of the rules, you can never have a trial at night. They broke the rule. Number two, you can never question the prisoner directly. They protected against self-incrimination. It was a prelude to our Fifth Amendment rights. I refuse to answer on the grounds that it may incriminate me. You can never directly ask a person. Caiaphas and Annas directly interrogated Jesus. They broke the rule. You always had to bring in witnesses, two or three witnesses. They brought in false witnesses. It could never be done at a festival. They did it at Passover. Eighteen rules, and about eight or nine of them, as I read the rules, they broke. It's a kangaroo court. It's a fixed trial. There's an old saying, if you can't get a lawyer who knows the law, get a lawyer who knows the judge. It was rigged. Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. That's once. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And that's twice. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. The Galileans were the hicks. 
of the land of Israel. Those in Jerusalem spoke a pure Hebrew, a formal Hebrew. Um, You might get the same reaction if you went to Great Britain and told them you spoke English. They would take umbrage to that statement. They say, you don't speak the Queen's English. You don't speak English, they'll tell you, you speak American. So in Galilee, you could have that accent and it was okay. In Jerusalem, they could tell you're from Galilee. Your speech betrays you. Now, you think that speech was bad. It's like Peter saying, I'll give you some speech. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. That's three times. Now immediately, Peter's defenses are up when these girls come to him in the courtyard. This is all about self-preservation. I think Peter could have choked that girl. I recognize you. He's going, oh man. (sighs) Did that twice. Then it says he began to curse. Now, it's a strong word. The word he began to curse means, may I be damned and killed if I am not telling you the truth. Interesting thing about sin and about these denials, you can see it here. Each one gets a little more, a little worse, a little more radical, a little crazier. That's how sin works. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. As we close tonight, there's something about the denial of Peter denying Jesus that that you should know. It's one of the events in the life of Christ that is mentioned by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels record it. Now that is significant because the Gospel writers are selective in what they include for their purposes as authors. All four of them include this. Why? Obviously the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to miss something here. So that no matter what narrative you read, you will understand this trial and temptation and denial of Jesus Christ by Peter. What were his steps? Number one, self-confidence, overconfidence. I'll never deny you. They might, they're flakes, but I'm the rock man, right? You're, you're Peter upon this rock. I'll build my church. You know, one of the problems with Peter is that he got complimented. Sometimes you compliment some people and it's like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. It's going to go to their head. They'll wear that forever. I love to encourage people, but Peter got complimented and he thought from then on, I'm rock man. I got the answer right on the test. I will prove once again that I am rock man. And so overconfident, he said he would never deny him. That's step number one. Step number two, he slacked off in his devotional life. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. Number three, he tried to cover up by zealous service that Jesus didn't need. He's throwing swords around. And number four, he finally is ashamed of his identity with Jesus. Can I have you think about something as you go? Compare this with Psalm 1. It's a perfect fit. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, 
nor sit in the seat of the scornful. That night, Peter did exactly those three steps. He walked in the counsel of the ungodly when he walked into the courtyard at Caiaphas' house. He stood in the way of sinners as he lingered by the fires. And he sat in the seat of the scornful when he began to curse and swear, I don't know him. Something else I've noticed. There's the use of three times, three times, three times. Three times Peter boasted that he wouldn't deny the Lord. Three times they were sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times Peter denied the Lord. And the best part, recorded by John, after the resurrection, three times Peter affirmed his love for Jesus when he said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because he had denied him three times. This was Peter's darkest moment. It's soon about to be eclipsed by his brightest day. Jesus will rise from the dead and preach his first sermon to Simon Peter. Can I say this too? Because Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him, it didn't surprise Jesus when Peter did deny him. It surprised Peter, but not Jesus. When you fail the Lord, don't you ever think the Lord goes, I can't believe it. No, He looks at you and says, I predicted it. And I'm ready to receive you at this moment, at this point. I'm ready to restore you. To be disappointed with yourself means that you've trusted in yourself. Jesus isn't disappointed because He never trusted in you to begin with. Three stages to Peter's ministry. Before the fire, under the fire, you were hammering him in the garden, and lastly, on fire. And that will be when he meets Jesus after the resurrection at the shores of Galilee like he predicted, and he is restored and recommissioned. He didn't say, Peter, I can't believe you, you turkey, you hypocrite. You you can never, ever be used ever again. He said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And he was recommissioned. That's his way. Father, we thank you for these incredible stories, examples, truths preserved in your word. I pray, Father, for those who are here, those of us who have gathered here in this living room for this Bible study, some who have failed you, walked away from you, maybe even denied you to some extent. You're wanting to restore them tonight. Some have never even come to Christ at all. They've gone to church, but they haven't come to Christ. They've been religious, but they haven't come to Christ personally. They're sincere, they're nice, and they might even recycle. But they haven't personally given their lives to Christ. And that is always the issue. What would you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? As we're closing this service... 
As our heads are bowed, I would like to pray for those of you who know that you need a relationship with Jesus tonight, and it's not there yet. You've never come to Him or you've fallen away from Him and you need to come back home and be restored to fellowship with Him, to forgiveness by Him. If that is the case, I'd like to pray for you. I need to know who I'm praying for. As we um, gather here today, tonight, before uh, we close this service, I want you to raise your hand up. And I want to acknowledge your hand. And we'll all pray for you, but I'll pray for you before we close. Raise your hand up if you need to come to Christ or come back to Him. Keep it up for just a moment. Lord bless you and you right up in the front. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am, right there in the middle. Anyone else? Raise your hand up. You're saying yes to him. Forgive me, Lord. Restore me, Lord. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. Anyone else? Anyone in the balcony? Slip your hand up. Yes, sir. Right up toward the front. In the back on my left. Anyone in the family room? Father, for those who are here with those hands up, I pray that my brothers and sisters join me. We're asking that you would do a deep and abiding work in the lives of each one, that they will know forgiveness and peace, change of heart, change of life, as they experience fellowship with you through the forgiveness of their sin, given once for all by Jesus, who died on the cross and took the fury, the wrath, the judgment for them. Replace sorrow with joy, anxiety with peace. May they enter into a sweet relationship with you here and now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please? We're going to sing a final song, and as we sing this song, I'm going to ask you if you raise your hand to get up from where you're standing, find the nearest aisle, walk to the front on the floor. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now to receive Christ as your Savior, to come to Him or come back to Him. As we sing, you come. Jesus called people publicly, and so I want to give you that opportunity to confess Him before men. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father and all the holy angels. You come and confess Christ publicly. That's how He called people. If you raised your hand, or even if you didn't, you were about to, as we sing, you come. To Him I freely give I will ever love And trust in Him His presence daily I saw some hands in the back And over here Get up and come go another day without the love of Christ? Will you sleep another night not sure where you're going to end up when you die? 
Are you going to live your life without the knowledge of why you're here? Come to the fountain of forgiveness. Come and give your life to Christ. Anyone else? Come on up, skateboard and all, doesn't matter. Man after my own heart. Now, those of you who have come forward, I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now. It's a prayer of receiving Christ into your life as your Savior and your Lord. And I'm going to pray this prayer out loud, and I'd like you to pray it out loud after me. It's not a formula. It's a prayer. You say these words from your heart. You say them to God Almighty. You're asking Him to take control. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus, that He died on the cross and rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn to you as my Savior. Help me to live for you as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.